Thanks for joining us for the City Church Podcast. More information on City Church is available at www.ourcitychurch.org. I want to read a passage from Scripture. It's not going to be on the screen, um, but I want to start with this because some exciting things going on as we're growing and as we're expanding, uh, adding new leadership, um, adding new staff. It's an exciting time. Can't announce everything that I want to announce yet. But um, I'm just saying Bridgeport's going to have some full-time staff pretty soon. That's just all, all I'm saying. So we're excited about that um, and uh, excited about all that God is doing. But I want to read a passage about overseers. The Bible makes it clear that um, the church has a senior pastor named Jesus. And Jesus is the overseer of the church. He's the chief shepherd. But then he puts others in charge, submitted to him. And this is a passage in the scripture that deals with that. This saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to be an overseer, desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. In other words, he doesn't have things in his life that call him out, you know, quickly that he's not doing that are godly. A husband of one wife or a one woman man. So someone that's devoted uh, to one wife, not to sexual sin, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Ouch. It's a whole sermon, but we're not going to do that one today. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. And so it speaks there at another time. It says, let him first be tested. And then, uh, and then given that responsibility as an overseer. So here at city church, we launched just over two years ago and, uh, I was the only pastor on staff at the time. Shortly after that, actually at the one-year mark, we brought on uh, Jeremiah LaCoyle as our second elder. Some of you guys know Jeremiah. Let me see your hand if you know Jeremiah. He is, four of you, great, awesome. He is, uh, he is an awesome man of God, one of my best friends in the entire world. And so we hope to add actually two elders in the next few months. But, uh, but the process of eldership or overseers in this church is a slow one. And we do that intentionally because we desire, you know, strong, consistent testing. And uh, it's really an appointment to this church that you take until you die or until God moves you on. And so we want to take that kind of slow. You know what I mean? You don't pick your wife in an hour, right? And so hopefully. And so, you know, um, so we don't pick elders in an hour either. It takes a long time. And so um, one particular individual who has been a friend for a long time and uh, is now moving into eldership, I want to introduce to you guys today. And I want to do that for a few reasons. So the way that the process starts is with an application. The person that is interested in or in being an elder or the person that the other elders pursue for eldership, that could happen either way, fills out a long, terrible application that talks about everything from the Trinity to the Holy Spirit to on and on and on, all types of theological questions. And then if that wasn't enough, after they filled out that application, we then sit with their family members and interview their family members. And these are exhaustive interviews where we literally deal with the nuances of their marriage, how they handle their money. We check their giving and if it's consistent and if it's generous. We look at all these things because we want to get down to the heart of who that person is. And so it's a you know, month after month process. Um, and then after we've done all that, we introduce those leaders to you. And I know that this is kind of a new process because we've only done it one other time, but it's going to happen again in another couple months with somebody else that's coming down the pipeline. But, um, but these elders oversee all the locations and really steer the vision of the church submitted to Jesus. And so, um, it's important for you guys to know who they are. So, uh, Joe, if you want to come on up, give Joe Silva a big hand as he comes. Joe has been a great friend and an amazing father in the faith for, uh, gosh, 
I don't know how long we've known each other, Joe. It's been a while. But, um, but I have just been so blessed, honored, and blown away by Joe's character, by his love for his family, uh, primarily for his love, by his love for Jesus. But he has a godly tribe, uh, just an amazing family. Um, pretty much all of his kids are involved in ministry at the church in some level, and his wife is involved in ministry. His son, Joey, you guys may know, he's the handsome, strapping young lad that leads worship here a lot. Um, he was here last week, I think, right? And, uh, and so, uh, so you've probably interacted with more of his family than you realize, but, but Joe is an amazing man of God. And I just want you guys to put a face to the name so that you can see who he is, because here's how this works. In a few weeks, we want to give you the church a few weeks to know who he is and to come to the leadership with any concerns about Joe. So if you know, like Joe's embezzling money on the side or something like that, you can tell us and he's not, but we want to do this as a way of accountability to honor you and to honor Joe. And so, um, over the next few weeks, we'll kind of be officially putting him into our uh, eldership of the church, but we want you to know who he is and have opportunity to speak into it before that happens. So I just asked Joe to pray for the, uh, our time together as we dig into the scripture and then we're going to get going. So Joe, why don't you lead us in prayer? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we are empty handed, but we're alive in your hand. And Lord, I just thank you for your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And it's just going to do that in our lives today. We thank you for the anointing on your servant today to bring the word. I thank you that your word does not return void, but it accomplishes what you desire. Yes, and it achieves a purpose for which it's sent. Lord, we just pray that our hearts receive it with faith, receive it with humility. And we just thank you for your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Come on, let's give Joe a hand as he... Uh, as all right, all right. So, um... Dang. Hey, one of the guys... Yeah, Steph, see if you can get me a water bottle. Thanks. Bummer. So, um, we are in a series called God in Cash. How many of you were with us last week? Let me see your hand. Last week. Okay, good. Uh, if you're new here, before I forget to tell you this, I'm going to tell you again at the end of service, but we're having a lunch at Two Boots for you today. All right? So, the first of every month, we have a lunch where uh, the leadership of the church just gets opportunity to meet you and hang out a little bit and learn a little bit of your story and then share a little bit about the church. So, if you're visiting or if you're new here and you want a free lunch, um, Come. It'll be right after service at Two Boots, um, which is the door next to this one. It's a pizza place. We'll have a section set off. They're opening early for us so that we can uh, we can do that. So um, if you're new, we'd love you to come and check out that lunch with us, okay? Um, I feel like I had something else to tell you. So we've been in this series, God in Cash, and last week we dealt with some pretty heavy issues. I'll do a quick review today. But the topic of money, thank you, Stephanie. Let's give her a round of applause. Thank you so much. Is, uh, is money. And of course, money is not the favorite topic of the church to deal with. And this one, uh, if you thought last week was tough, this one is mildly tough as well. Um, let me start with a story, okay? Quick story. I don't know if do we, do we have any Star Trek people in the room. Come on. I know there's always a few. Yeah, don't be ashamed. There's more than that. You know, there's always these people. My father-in-law is a Star Trek guy. I don't let him live it down. You know, there's always these people in the room that, you know, they're just fascinated by, by actually, you know, by outer space and, and all that stuff. In fact, Carol, before we started the service, asked me if I was okay with Star Wars. She was like, are you okay with that? Because she had some things that she wanted to give my kids for Star Wars. Like, of course I'm okay with Star Wars, you know? Like we, you know, there's some theologically awkward stuff going on in Star Wars, but we just, we just, we deal with that, you know? But my kids love love, uh, you know, space and space travel. And of course, one of the most famous 
people um, in space travel, in the history of space travel, is Neil Armstrong. One of the most famous men, probably the most famous figure in space travel. The first man to walk on the moon, if you believe that happened. But um, he said when he stepped out on the moon, right? One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. How many of you heard that phrase before? Yeah, most of us have. It's one of those ones that if you're in America for any length of time, you'll probably hear. But one that you don't hear as often, I heard this story recently, uh, one that you don't hear as often is as he was boarding the ship again, leaving the moon, he made another statement that is less known. He said as he got on the ship, good luck, Mr. Gorski. And of course, when the spaceship landed on Earth, Neil Armstrong was asked all types of questions. What was it like in space? You know, how was it, you know, how was the travel? You know, all the different things. And then a couple of reporters started asking, well, Mr. Armstrong, we noticed that you made a comment, you know, as you were boarding the ship, good luck, Mr. Gorski. Is that a Russian astronaut that you're competing against? Or, you know, who is Mr. Gorski? And and Neil Armstrong just smiled and wouldn't answer the question. So a few weeks went by. And of course, the question came up again in an interview with Neil Armstrong. And again, he wouldn't answer the question. Two years went by. And again, the question came up in an interview and Neil Armstrong wouldn't answer the question. And for generations, Neil Armstrong ignored this question of why he said, good luck, Mr. Gorski. Now, 26 years, I believe, after the fact, a reporter brought it up again in an interview with Neil Armstrong. They said, Mr. Armstrong, we know it's been years and years and years, but you've never answered this question. Good luck, Mr. Gorski. You said that as you were getting back on the spaceship. Why would you say that? And he said, all right, I think I can tell you why I said that now. He said, when I was a boy, I was playing baseball in my backyard and, uh, you know, me and a friend were playing baseball and my friend hit the ball over the fence and I climbed over the fence into Mr. and Mrs. Gorski's yard. They're my next door neighbors growing up. And so I'm in their yard and I'm running up to their house to get my ball. And as I'm running up, I hear Mrs. Gorski screaming at Mr. Gorski. And she said, sex, you want to have sex? We'll have sex when the boy next door walks on the moon. So, (laughs) what kind of church is this? So, so today we're talking about first steps. First steps, okay? First steps. One small step can make a big difference in your life. There's my transition. I've been trying to fit that story in for months. One small step can make a big transition in your life. Today, we're going to talk about some small steps, okay? Last week, we talked about a good investment, and I dealt with some lies. Do you remember this? I said the first lie that we're so apt to believe is that I'm not really rich, right? That I'm really not that rich. The other lie that we believe is that I deserve, you know, I deserve what I have. You know, I deserve it because I've earned it. Another lie that we believe is a little more will be enough. And the last lie that I dealt with is that surplus will create a sense of security. And we, you know, kind of default all those lies and showed that in reality those things are not true and we ended with a massive idea that has cataclysmic effects on our personal lives if we let it the idea that you can know how much you believe in eternity by how much you give for god do you remember that you can know how much you believe in eternity by how much you give for god this isn't uh you know a stand in line sermon this isn't like top popular sermons but um these are crucial crucial issues. And me and my wife were just having our third son, Ezra. We, we already had him. She did most of the work, but it, we had our third son, Ezra. And, uh, you know, he's two months old now. And I was trying to review, I don't know if your parents can identify with this, but I almost, you know, almost completely forgot 
the whole system after four and a half years. My, my second oldest is four and a half. So it's been four and a half years since we did the baby thing. And I can't remember any of the routines, you know, any of the rules. And so I've had to kind of relearn them. And so one of the things I was trying to figure out is like, when is this kid going to walk? Like, how long? Is it two years old? Is it a year old? When does that happen? And of course, I did find out on Google that it's nine to 12 months typically that a child walks because I couldn't remember. And, uh, you know, nine to 12 months. And I was thinking about that. Wow. Think about it. It takes a human being nine months as a minimum to take one step. You know how long it takes to take your second step and your third step? Usually a few weeks after you've taken your first step. So what I'm saying here is that oftentimes, and you've heard this phrase before, the first step's the hardest. The first step is the hardest, right? And so that first step for a baby is the hardest step. Well, it's similar to that when you're going to look at your finances in a godly way. You're going to find that the first step is going to be the hardest. And so I'm going to give you three steps, but we're going to hang out mostly on step one today because the first step is often the hardest. Luke chapter 16, if you have a Bible, you can go there. Luke chapter 16, it'll be up on the screen. There's a lot of scripture today. I'm going to cover maybe more scripture than I did last week, which is rare for us. I know normally we camp out on one passage. Today, we are going to bounce everywhere. So try to stay with me. Luke chapter 16, verse 10. Who, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've, been fa- you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful, this is verse 12, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, Jesus tells a story right before this passage that's a little strange. He tells a story about a manager who mismanages his owner's funds. If you've read the story, you'll identify with this. If you haven't, review the rest of chapter 16 on your own. But he talks about this manager who mismanages his owner's funds. And so the owner is going to fire the manager. But before the owner has a chance to fire the manager, the manager goes to the owner's debtors and he says, listen, I know my manager, my my owner owes you, you owe him $1,000. Cut your bill to $500 and you can pay him off right now. He's cutting deals with all of his manager's Payees. And the owner actually commends the action. And he says, that was shrewd. That was wise. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying rip people off or deceive your boss. That's not the point of the parable. But the point of the parable can be found in this little phrase. You should take advantage of your present situation to maximize future advantages. Take advantage of your present situation to maximize future advantages. In other words, you know, you're going to be commended by God if you use what you have now to prepare you for later. And in verse 9, Jesus pulls this now out of the realm of the natural and into the realm of the eternal. Check it out. He says in verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth or worldly wealth so that when it fails, because it will, either when you die or when you go bankrupt or when the economy crashes or when Jesus comes back or whichever one happens first, it's going to fail. When it fails, that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. That they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So what he's saying here is that management of money, follow me today, is not just a natural issue or a temporal issue. Check this idea out. Management of money is an eternal issue issue. It deals with something eternal. And I want to unpack this idea for the next couple minutes that God examines how you manage money to determine what he can entrust to you for eternity. Think about this for a minute. What I'm saying is that the way that you manage money today 
God is examining that management so that he knows how he can entrust to you future glory. So you might say, well, you know, my management of money is my problem. I don't have enough. It's my issue, whatever. No, it's not just your problem. It's not just your family's problem. The way that you manage money is a barometer by which God will entrust you with eternal riches. That how you manage it now will determine what he trusts you with later. Does that make sense to you? Three people. Awesome. And that's kind of scary because, you know, we are a GPS generation. You know, I don't know about you, but um, how many of you use a GPS on a regular basis? GPS. I mean, it's almost impossible. Do you remember when there wasn't GPS? I mean, still, I'll call my dad. It happened the other day. I call my dad and I say, Dad, I had to go to a funeral. I said, Dad, how do you get to the funeral? What's the address? He said, oh, I don't know the address, but there's this, there's this red house. And then after the red house, it's like two streets. And then there's a gas station. And I'm like, no, no I can't be thinking about all that. I just want an address and my phone will speak to me. Don't you understand, Dad? I don't want to think. I don't want to plan. I don't want to do any of that. I just want the address. Oh, I, I don't know the address. But, but I know that if, I think it's two gas. And he, can't, he went back to it. I was like, Dad, no, no, no. no. And, and, you know, there's an older generation, some of you are here, that, you know, you actually, it's okay, you actually know where you're going, you know. We, the mostly younger people, have no clue. We don't know where we're going because we just blindly follow the holy phone, right? Or whatever it is that speaks to us. You know, the uh, Australian woman in the car, you know, or whatever it is. Mr. T, I had Mr. T for a while who spoke to me, you know, from the car to tell me where to go. You know, whoever it may be. Now, the problem is that when you translate that perspective into finance, you get into trouble where you say, listen, I don't have much of a plan. I just kind of follow what my bank says online that I have, you know, and that's kind of the plan. The plan is I look online and I figure out what the online account says I have and that's what I go with and I just kind of blindly follow along. And if that's been your perspective, hear me today. You need a plan. Someone say you need a plan. You need a plan. You can have a little fun. We're talking about money at church. This is awesome. You need a plan. So let's hit some scriptures here. How's the plan start? Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. I'm going to read to 18. By him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent, not a word that you use in your common vernacular on a regular basis. Preeminent in the Greek literally means first, to be first, to hold first place. So Paul's point here in speaking about Jesus is, hey, Jesus created everything, right? Jesus is the reason for everything. Jesus is before everything. Jesus holds everything together. And because he's the beginning and everything belongs to him, he, he created the oceans, he created the trees, he created your brain, he created your heart, he created your breath. Everything you have belongs to him. And though you may have a bank account, in reality, the bank is his, the account is his, the air you breathe is his, the lungs you use are his. Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Now, this creates an immediate tension in the human psyche, does it not? Because we as people, since the Garden of Eden, have been planning how we can feel like we're in control. And so in the garden, when they had opportunity to eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, what they were truly doing there was making a decision that they would be the arbitrators or the controllers of objective truth. They would be the individuals. Humanity would be the people that would be able to decide what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. And you do the exact same thing. I want to decide 
what's right and wrong. I want to decide what's good and evil. It makes me uncomfortable to have somebody else telling me what's good and what's evil, what's true and what's false, what's right and what's wrong. I don't like this idea of an objective reality. I like my subjective reality. You've felt that before in your own heart, haven't you? Okay, good, yeah. And so we cling to this false sense of control as if we actually had objective reality in our grasp. And so step one to godly management, and remember I said that step one is usually the hardest. Step one is first God. First God. First God. And here's where things start to break down. It's one thing to say that God is preeminent. Okay, God, you're first. I agree. You created everything. You made everything. You're first. But how do we actually practically declare that? How do we actually tangibly declare that? I want to show you a pattern in scripture, a pattern that may make you feel uncomfortable or a pattern that you may rejoice over in your heart. The pattern that I see in scripture is that we declare that God is first, that he's over all by giving our first and our best to him. I'll try to illustrate this. I have a wife. How many married people do we have in the room? Now, I don't know if you've figured out your wife's love language yet. If you haven't, that's your first assignment. Go figure it out. Good luck. But usually, my wife is a quality time girl. You can buy her gifts and she will take them. Um, you can, uh, you know, you can give her words of affirmation and so she'll say thank you. But in the end, she wants time with her husband. And so, you know, I remember early in our marriage, I would say things like, baby, all my time is for you. When I go to work, it's for you. When I work those late hours, it's all for you and Jesus, but for you. And, you know, when I hang out with the guys and, you know, that's for you too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And she would say, that's nice, Justin. I'm glad that you do that all for me. But to show me that that's all for me, I need you to set aside some priority time for me. Right? I want you to set that time aside before you set aside all the other time. I don't want to be an afterthought. If I really am your priority relationally, I should come before the guys and before the sports and before the extra activities. Shouldn't I? Some wives say amen. Amen. And so she understood that she was priority when there was special, even though all the time belonged to her, the priority time revealed that truly all the time belonged to her. You see that? In the same way, God says, in your resources, it's nice that you say, God, everything belongs to you. All my money, all my possessions, all my resources, everything I have. God, my brains, my intelligence, it all belongs to you, God. Well, that's great to say. And he's today saying, prove it. Prove it by the first and the best. Take a little journey with me through scripture. Genesis chapter four. Look at how consistent this pattern is from beginning to end in scripture. I'm going to hit a whole bunch. So if you're kind of new to Bible stories, buckle up. Genesis chapter four, verse three. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering from the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was ticked and his face fell, right? So you have two brothers here. These are actually the firstborn sons of Adam and Eve. And they have this interaction with God and they're just starting to get to know God. And so Cain, in the course of time, just kind of randomly, no specific order, 
gives some crops to the Lord as an offering. And so he's a farmer. He gives crops. It says that he gave an offering. Doesn't say the first, doesn't say the best. Abel, however, gives the firstborn of his flock. Think about how this is for a herdsman to give his firstborn. Your sheep has a kid, has a baby, and it's like, dang, now I got double. That's awesome. Let's kill it. Let's kill it and sacrifice it to God. Well, what if my sheep never has another sheep? Well, I'm going to give my best to God. And he gives the fat portions, which are the most important portions he gives to God. And so he says, God, I'm going to give you my first and my best. And Cain does not. Cain is rejected. Exodus 13, this is now taught in the law. It says this, and the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whoever is first to open the womb among all the people of Israel, both men and beast, is mine. And so the firstborn was now consecrated unto the Lord. And so animals literally were taken out of the womb and sacrificed because they were the firstborn and they were immediately sacrificed. So the people were not sacrificed, but an animal of value was sacrificed for the person to redeem the individual, always belonging to God. This pattern goes again and again and again. When the people of Israel cross into the promised land, you see that Joshua now is going to take on his first city and his first city is Jericho. And if you know the story, veggie tales, they blow the horns, the whole thing falls down. The veggie tales don't kill everybody, but in the real story, they kill everybody and so uh, we'll talk about that another day. But uh, now in the middle of the victory, here's what God speaks to Joshua in Joshua 6. He says, but all the silver and the gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Pause. If you know Israel's history at all, you know that these people just spent 400 years in captivity. They have no wealth. They have no personal possessions. They just risked their lives and conquered a massive city called Jericho that was loaded Now they've got all these resources and God is saying, that's great that you have all those resources. Give them all to God. Can you imagine? We're rich. Give it all to God. Okay, okay. I mean, how difficult that would be for a slave to say, we just conquered. Why? It was the first city. That's why. You know what he did with the second city? Second city was AI. He told the people to take all of the treasure for themselves. But the first city, God wanted. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce, that then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And so we see this principle again and again and again, that God will bless you and provide for you and be your source if you declare by faith that he's your source by giving him the first. Okay, And you say, well, Justin, that's an Old Testament principle. No, it's not. It's a biblical principle. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus affirms it by saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Make God's kingdom your priority. And then these things, speaking of food, clothing, shelter, will be added unto you if you make him priority. Paul made this a regular routine in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he tells us, check it out. He says this in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Hold on. What about my groceries? My wife goes shopping on the first day of the week. Sunday is like a barren wasteland in my house. I go in there. I'm like, I want to eat something. And there's nothing to eat on Sundays because my ravenous sons eat everything. Then my wife goes 
and she buys food and then we're, we're doing good again. Now, what the apostle is saying is before your groceries, before your mortgage, before anything else, plan to give. What? Plan to give. Are you crazy? I'm going to plan to give money away before I plan to pay my mortgage? This is ridiculous. Yeah. It is. It's exactly the type of thing that God would tell people to do. Something that seems so counterintuitive. Something that seems so personally uncomfortable. And in a culture saturated with me, I want mine, I want to have me and mine provided for. God is saying, I'm asking my people to live by a completely different paradigm in regards to their money. That before they buy anything, they give to the mission of Jesus. Wow. Why? Because in doing that, you say to the whole world, my job is not my source. My house is not my source. The food that I eat is not my source. There is one who gives me daily bread that tastes better than any food I could ever eat. God is preeminent. God is my source. And I'm so convinced of that that I'm going to give before I do anything else. That's a radical way to live. And the watching world will stand in awe and scratch their heads in wonder. Because it doesn't make any sense. Turn to the person next to you and say, this is awesome. This is awesome. Yeah. Issue. We have an issue. If I want to declare in my checking account that Jesus is first, I have to actually know what's in my checking account. Right? And so step two is married to step one. Step one is first God. Step two is the budget. The budget. Step two, the budget. I remember in high school, I took a class called On Your Own. It was a senior class that I took because I didn't <clears throat> care about school anymore. I just wanted to graduate. Sorry, teachers and stuff. I just was done. And, and so I just said, let me take this totally lame class that will be easy on your own. And they introduced how to balance a checkbook. And I remember the kids in the class being like, you know, like holding the checkbook as if it was some like foreign object, you know, and being like, wow, balance a checkbook. I don't get it. You know, and like, like all around budgeting, there's this deep mystery. The budget for so many of us is like, do you live on a budget? On a budget? I mean, I, I kind of sort of plan, but a, a, a specific budget, like every dollar has a home, like an actual plan. Like, do I live? Oh, that takes a lot of time and it's kind of frustrating and it, it takes a while and I, I don't have time for all that. And, you know, it's kind of like this mysterious, I don't think it could ever happen. I, you know, imagine it in some of our minds to be like the unicorn, you know? Like, I've heard of those things, budgets, you know, but I don't know if they actually exist. I mean, I don't know if actually it's possible to live by a budget. Well, step one informs step two. And so step one is first God and step two is the budget. And step one teaches us what to do first and step two with the budget. So if God is preeminent, where do I begin my budget? I begin my budget by making eternal deposits, what we talked about last week. By planning my giving. Well, how much should I set aside? Now it's getting hot in here. Should I set aside 10%? Should I set aside 5%? Should I set aside 
I am going to, for all time, answer that question. Isn't that great? Are you ready? I want to clearly and specifically answer the question of how much should I set aside? But the answer is actually a question. How much do you believe in eternity? That should determine how much you should set aside. If it's true that you can make eternal deposits by giving to the mission of God and by giving money away in this life, the question of how much should I give is really built around the idea of how much do I believe the stuff that I say I believe. John Wesley is a radical example of generosity. In 1731, he began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. He records that in one year, his income was 30 pounds. This was an individual living in England in the 1700s. And his living expenses were 28 pounds, so he had 2 pounds to give away. The next year, his income doubled. But he still managed to live on 28 pounds, and so he had 32 pounds to give away. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. Instead of letting his expenses rise with his income, which is the natural thing that happens, we talked about that last week, he kept them to 28 pounds and he gave away 62 pounds. In the fourth year, he received 120 pounds for a salary. As before, his expenses were 28 pounds and his giving rose to 92 pounds. This practice began at Oxford and continued throughout his life. Even when his income rose to the thousands of pounds sterling, he lived simply and he quickly gave away his surplus money. One year, his income was a little over 1,400 pounds. He lived on 30 pounds and gave away nearly 1,400 pounds. Because he had no family to care for, he had no need of savings. So he saved it all in the savings account of heaven. He answered the question, how much do I believe in eternity by giving as much as possible for the glory of Jesus? Now, here's what I will say. There's a lot of debate about percentages and what should happen there. And I want to, I want to talk about some floors, some places that we should start because my personal conviction, and I want to flush it out in scripture is that Christians should start with the challenge of setting aside 10% of their income to give away to the glory of God first. Now, as soon as I say that for most of us, or for some of us, maybe if you've been around church for a little while, warning bells are going off in your mind. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. Pause. I've done studies. You can't prove that. It's not an, a New Testament promise. It's an Old Testament law. You can't declare that the tithe or 10% is enforced upon us as New Testament Christians. That's not something we're responsible for. We're not under the law. I have had so many heated conversations with Christians about this idea of giving and specifically donating or specifically setting aside 10%. And there's a hostility that surrounds this issue. And let me just defuse a little bit of it. First of all, I agree. There is no New Testament law of tithing. I don't believe in the law of tithing. I believe in the grace of tithing. That would have been cool for an amen or something like that. But, but I wonder, and this is between you and Jesus, and hopefully if you've been around for any length of time, we have some rapport, and you know my heart here, because yes, finances is a manipulated and often distorted topic in the church. And you know that if you've been around, that I just shoot straight with you. That I want to be humble, I want to be honest, I want to be transparent, and I want Jesus to be glorified in your life. And I told you last week that God doesn't want your money, and He doesn't. But He desperately wants your heart. And I want your heart for Him. And I wonder if your objection to tithing is rooted in biblical interpretation or in a fear that you're not going to have enough. 
And that makes me wonder if you even know at your core the glorious gospel. Because when you see the generosity of Jesus, the inclination of the heart is to be overwhelmed, humbled, and generous in return. Now, if you're new here, please understand that we don't talk about money every week. We really don't. But you came during the money series, so this is what you get. What can I say? Let me tell you why Christy and I, my wife, give 10% of our gross income away to the local church. Let me tell you why. And that's as a minimum for us. We give beyond that um, to other missions. But let me tell you why. I'll give you a few quick reasons, okay? And you can wrestle with these on your own. One reason that we decided 10 years ago that we were going to give 10% always to our local community and to our churches because we see a pattern established in the Old Testament, established in Abraham, established in Isaac. Each of these gave 10, 10% away to the glory of God. And the Old Testament law tells us that 10% should be given to the priesthood to provide for the needs of the Levitical priests, right? And so this was a pattern in the Old Testament, and I believe it was affirmed in the New Testament. Not as a law, but as a grace. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul actually refers to this practice of giving 10% to the Levitical priesthood so that they could be provided for. And this is what he says in verse 13. He says, Do you not know that those who are employed by the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share the sacrificial offering. So he says, This is how it's been done in Jewish history forever. Now he pulls it into a New Testament reality. In the same way, the Lord commanded, pretty strong word, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He doesn't put a percentage around it, but he uses this 10% practice as an inference here, right? He says that this is what they did in the same way. This is how you should live in generosity. Another reason that I always give 10% is because it grows my faith. And the scripture says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I trust God with my money by giving him my first. And so literally when I'm doing my bills, the very first pill I pay online, because I'm cool like that. I don't, you know, write checks or use cash, but I just pay it online. And the very first one I could click on is City Church. Why? Well, I'll get to all the reasons for that in a moment. But the first reason is because I trust God. Do I add up how much I'm going to have to be able to pay my mortgage first? No, I don't. I give first. And sometimes that's scary. And when I do it, I say, you're first, Jesus. You're my provider, not my job. Not the groceries, not the mortgage. You're my provider. You're my source. You're the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It could click. Another reason is it helps me stay free from the love of money. Giving consistently and first 10% helps me stay free from the love of money. It causes me to look at that amount that I'm giving and say, crud, I could have bought something sweet with that. But I'm not. I'm not going to buy something sweet. Instead, I'm going to give it away. I'm going to give it away. And it detaches my heart from that love of money. But probably the biggest reason why I give 10% on the front end of my income is because I actually believe in the mission of God, specifically through our local community. I actually believe that it has eternal impact. And I want to sow into that because I know that what I sow, I will reap. And I want to see it make impact Far beyond my life. And to do that, I've got to fund it. And so I do it joyfully and I do it consistently. 
Now the question becomes, where should I give, right? Okay, Justin, maybe you're right about this particular giving on the front end of my income, giving God my first and therefore declaring to God that all I have belongs to him. Maybe I'll buy that, but where am I supposed to give? Should I give to missionaries? Should I give to, you know, the impoverished? Should I give to justice issues? Certainly, you should give to all those things. In fact, I personally love giving to all those things and me and my family do on a consistent basis. But what we see in scripture And what I believe is a conviction is that I take 10% of my income on the front end of my income and I give 10% to my local church because that's where my primary mission is and that's where my primary spiritual life comes from. And so I find in scripture a pattern that where you're receiving spiritual life and where you're participating in mission, that's where your primary giving should go. And let me show you some passages that have convicted me through the years. First Corinthians chapter nine, Paul says this, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much to reap material things from you? First Timothy chapter five in the new living says it like this, elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well. So in other words, he's speaking of local leaders in a local congregation, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching for the scripture says you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain in another place. Those who work deserve their pay Galatians 6 6 those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers sharing all good things with them and so we see this pattern that says okay if I'm invested locally in a community I should be primarily giving locally in that community Acts chapter 4 I see that same pattern where the where the disciples put their gifts at the apostles feet and the apostles distribute them as they have need and so Christy and I we give 10% to this local church because we believe that this is our personal mission. And then we give beyond that 10% to other things. We love to give some of my favorite organizations are Voice of the Martyrs and Gospel for Asia and Compassion International. There's another number of other initiatives that we get involved in to give, but we give that beyond what we give to our local community. And listen, we have lived so far under the poverty line for years And praise Jesus, we're not quite under it right now, but we have for a long time lived there and we always gave. And we always gave proportionately for our income and God always miraculously, supernaturally for the 10 years that we've been together provided for us. Why? Because we said, God, you're my source and this takes faith and it seems stupid, but I trust you. So practical budget. You guys doing okay this morning? Okay. All right. We'll pass out band-aids on the way out. (laughs) Practical budget. Let me give you my practical budget. First, I give. That's number one. Second, I save. Why do I do that? I save second because I find that if I don't put something in the savings account right after I give, there's nothing left to put in the savings account at the end of the month. And so I save second. Third, uh, we buy groceries because we're going to buy food anyway. So we set aside money for food. And that's our third priority. After that, we pay our mortgage or housing, rent, whatever it is that you've got to pay. After that, we pay our utilities. After that, we deal with our debt and pay that back. And I talked about that last week. After that, we deal with our cars and pay whatever we need to pay for that. And then after that, we deal with miscellaneous income. Things like, you know, going to the movies and that type of stuff. And so basically, our budget is based on those priorities. And literally, when the money runs out, we stop paying. And by God's grace, he's enabled us to be able to pay this stuff. But the basic truth of a budget is that the money that comes in has to be more than the money that goes out. Did you catch that? Because if we all just lived by that rule, our entire financial world would change. The money that comes in has to be, has to be more than the money that goes out. And so every dollar, this is my goal, every dollar has a home. 
Every dollar has a place where it belongs. And so nothing's done unintentionally. In Proverbs 27, it says, Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. So next time you go and buy a goat, God wants you to pay attention to that goat. All right? That's the application of that scripture. No, what he's saying there is you got to know what you have. You have to plan. You have to prepare. It takes a lot of time. So first God, then the budget. And let me give you very briefly step three and we'll wrap up with this. Step three is kill debt. Kill debt. Uh, Most of us, unfortunately, in this world today, we just date debt. We like debt. We hang out with debt. Debt's not a big deal. Scripture teaches that the borrower is slave to the lender. That we should owe nothing to anyone except love. Because debt can limit your opportunities for God. And if you're suffocating with credit card debt and student loans and bad decisions for generations, you have to make a very high priority in your life, your step three of the budget, killing debt. And at the end of this series, in two weeks, we're going to be offering some very practical resources. If you find yourself in a significant amount of debt, we want to walk with you through a specific process to help you kill that debt. But killing debt must become a priority. And that means if the boat that you want to buy is more than you have, you don't buy it. And that means if you run out of cash and you don't have any more, you stop spending rather than charging. And that means if the vacation isn't paid for, you plan to pay for it or you don't go. And these are decisions that are difficult, that are painful, that I've done wrong, and maybe you've done wrong in past you know, years, but the priority of God is to stay debt-free. And so we have a passion, personally, to get rid of all of our debt, including our mortgages, because we want to be 100% free to follow God. Let's end with this. Go back with me to Mount Sinai, okay? You're like, I've never been to Mount Sinai. Well, imagine for, with me for a moment. Thousands of years ago, Mount Sinai, the people of Israel are experiencing God in a way that no human being ever has since the dawn of time. He's visiting them on a mountain and he's writing with his finger on stone the things he wants them to do. Pretty big deal. I mean, that's probably beyond anything you've experienced personally. And so Moses is up there and God's writing with his finger on a rock about who he is and what he wants his people to do. Did you ever stop And think about the first thing that God wrote on those rocks. The first thing he wrote is, You shall have no other gods before me. Preeminence. First God. First God. First God takes faith. Putting God first takes faith. So I want to press you to trust him. In America, the average Christian gives 2.5% away of his income. 2.5% of his income. I wonder what could be accomplished if every Christian in this country gave 10%. Well, statistically, that would produce an extra $165 billion. I don't know if you realize this, but with $25 billion we could solve all global hunger, starvation, and death by preventable disease everywhere on the planet. With $12 billion, we could eliminate illiteracy. With $15 billion, we could solve the entire world's water and sanitation issues. As I was thinking about this sermon, one thought started bubbling up in my soul, and I want to leave you with this this morning. That God has put within you and me the capacity to change the world 
in one generation. And we're buying flat screen TVs and financing new cars instead. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you humbly because we need you. And God, we're really grateful for grace. We're really grateful for grace that you have given us by your grace, forgiveness of sins, mercy. You've washed us. You've accepted us and adopted us as children. God, I pray that you would allow our hearts to interact with grace in such a way that it produces humility, in such a way that it produces transparency, in such a way that it produces generosity. God, I pray for the person right now that is battling internally. And God, I pray that they would be reminded of the Apostle Paul's words, and these are the words that are bleeding from my heart as well. Not that we seek the gift, but that we seek the credit to their account. That's the longing of our soul, that we would make deposits for eternity in the eternal account of heaven and through divine generosity, see the world transformed for your glory. That's what we want to do, God. God, I pray that the leaders of this church would lead the way in generosity. And I pray, Jesus, that every one of us, especially those with a grace-forgiving far beyond 10%, would maximize our eternal opportunity through radical generosity. God, I know that most of us don't give because of fear. Fear that we're not going to have enough. Fear that you're not strong enough to provide. I pray that you deal with us this morning. That you confront our fears head on. And I pray that we would transfer faith, not just to the area of salvation, but to the area of money. That we would dare to believe in a God who calls himself Abba. Who calls himself Father. Who doesn't need our money, but who desperately wants our hearts. In Jesus' name. Stand on your feet with me. I want to give you the next few minutes just to, uh, just to do business with God. And I'll be up to close out the service um, in a few minutes. But I want to just sing. And I asked Stephanie to sing this song today. I felt like it was fitting for what we're doing. Just declaring the preeminence of Jesus. And um, I want you to take this time as we sing this song to do some internal work. And to magnify Jesus. And to come to a place where you can personally say. Maybe you're a student and you don't have much money. Maybe you're out of work. I don't know your circumstance. God does though. But I want you to come to a place where you can personally say, you're first, God. Not just lip service, but with my actions, you're first, God. You're preeminent. Let him convict you. Let him speak to you this morning. We hope you've been challenged and encouraged by this City Church podcast. Visit City Church at www.ourcitychurch.org.